LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Daniel M. Hello, hello. And Missy Wallace. Yeah. So, Missy Wallace, if you listen back to the last time that we had Scott Sauls on, uh, we were talking about Nashville and we were talking about the Gotham Project, you know, the residency and his time in New York and coming to Nashville. So we were just doing a lot of that. And I had come across the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work probably a couple of years ago and knew that Scott was tied to that. I wasn't fully clear on the origins. And right. we started talking and he was like, Missy Wallace. Missy Wallace, you, is, Missy Wallace, you need to interview Missy Wallace on the podcast. So when we looked it up, we were like, man, Missy we Wallace, do need to interview yes, Missy Wallace. she has a uh, long tenure in corporate America and also in the nonprofit sector. I mean, she's worked at the Bank of America with Time Warner, worked internationally as well. And she is, um, as we talked before having her on. She is really passionate about the red trail in Percy Warner Park, which apparently yeah. we have never heard about. Neither one of us. Yes, but it's shameful that we have. So it's that's so <laughs> amazingly shameful. <laughs> so Missy, uh, with her husband, twenty for twenty four years, uh, they with uh, one of her three teenagers and her dogs is usually found on the Percy Warner Park in on the red trail in the Percy Warner Park. So <laughs> thanks for weathering the storms and being on the podcast with us today, <laughs> Missy. <laughs> nice, nice to talk to you all. Happy to be with you. Perfect. So yeah, before we get into the questions, give us, give us your side of the story of how <laughs> you left uh, corporate America, nonprofit world, and you know, how the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work came about. Well, I'm going to give you the elevator okay. version or otherwise it could take the entire podcast because it's a pretty special okay. story. But um, the short version is um, I spent about 10 years in corporate America. Probably my most formative time was working for the Boston Consulting Group. And I got transferred to Southeast Asia and got to do management consulting projects um, all over Southeast Asia and just learned so much. Um, and when we moved back to the U.S., I had a couple of children and then I was we had moved back to New York and I was having my third child and my husband had a job transition. And so we moved down to Nashville. And this was about 17 years ago where his family was from and I had gone to undergraduate. And my first consulting project in Nashville um, was, you know, under my own shingle. I had stopped working for the Boston Consulting Group and it was with a company and their media, um, some of their media investments. And the person who had hired me said, hey, will you come out and do this project at this school? I'm on the nonprofit board of a school and I'd love to just get you for a six week project. And long story short, that turned into a 10 year career um, unexpectedly in secondary education. And basically um, there was a K through eight school who had been um, given the opportunity of a large grant of land um, and a very bold vision to rethink what best in class high school education could look like. And so I joined that team and this, um, it was an amazing 10 years there as well. It becomes um, relevant to the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work um, because while at the school in the middle of my 10 or 12 years there, my oldest daughter was diagnosed with a um, very unusual, severe disease that attacked her brain. And she ended up um, in very dire straits and was discharged to hospice. 
and we actually um, aggressively sought some um, other types of care. And the story has a nice shiny bow at the end, which is that um, she's thriving and in her final year of college. But she was out of school for about three years. And during that time, I did a major, major theological self-study boot camp. And at that point, um, I realized that I had had a lot of things wrong. And I also had just a great faith, um, I don't know, I think a huge sanctification time. Because when you're told that your child probably isn't going to make it, then the um, bootstrapping self-help, when I'm in the mood for you, Christianity doesn't work anymore. It's very much a foot in the road of I've either got to be all in or all out. And so um, I ended up going back to work at the school again, but also started some divinity study at night, which I did not finish, by the way. I do not have a master's in divinity. And during that time, I got exposed to all the faith and work theology and realized I had had completely wrong faith and work theology my whole career. And in fact, had made the switch from the for-profit sector to the nonprofit sector very quickly, largely based on a rationale of poor faith and work theology, thinking I was moving up in the hierarchy of God's work to move into a helping profession. Um, God is sovereign and he makes all things good. I'm not at all regretful that I took that position, but I did do it with bad rationale. So anyway, I had such a transformative aha moment when I figured out that I had worked for 20 years with bad theology and I felt an overwhelming nudge, um, that this crazy career, this sick child that resulted in this theological study was leading me to write a plan for the National Institute for Faith and Work. So that's the, that's the elevator uh, version. So so what what does what do you do through the Nashville um, Institute for Faith and Work? Sure, we launched four years ago, and we exist to equip, connect, and mobilize individuals and groups to figure out what their Christian faith has to do in their day to day vocational work. So whether they're doing spreadsheets for a bank, or driving a trash truck, or they are you know, the head of the Percy Warner parks taking care of the red trail. Um, why does their work matter to God and how is it bringing structure out of chaos and trying to call it good? And how can they um, bring their whole selves to their work in a way that brings about flourishing both individually and for the community? And so faith and work, if you use those words together, depending on where you grow up or grew up or what denomination you are, you might think, of certain things. Some people might say, oh, that means evangelism. Or other people may say, oh, that means taking care of the poor. Or some people might be, oh, that means you're closed on Sundays. But really, it's not any one of those things. Um, Another very common flavor of it right now is a social impact company. And it's not one of those things in isolation. But it's, um, but yes, it can be all those things and more. And so we exist to help people and organizations really work through what is their particular context and how their Christian faith impacts their context, whether it's business or politics or um, wilderness management or um, the list goes on and on. The arts, of course, is important in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of different programs that you guys offer. Um, can you just talk about the Gotham 
the the Gotham residencies, mm-hmm. or, or I've, I don't know what the the term is, but that because I do have a friend that's gone through that, and and I know it's something that um, is. I think our listeners would really appreciate learning about. Sure. So Gotham is a nine month intensive for influencers across all industries and across denominations to really dig in and figure out what does my faith have to do with my particular job? And it happens concurrently. You're still working. It's not a full-time program. You're still working, but you come um, to us two hours a week from August to May. And then we have, it has retreats and it has field trips in the city, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really a heart community world, transforming your heart, which helps you transform your community, which helps you transform the world, but figuring out through your exact sphere of influence. And, um, I say that the magic sauce is really four things. It's a, it's a very transformative experience. And I say the magic sauce is around four things. Um, one is we all do something hard together, but to be honest, you can go do something hard at CrossFit. Um, there's a lot of places you can do something hard. The second, um, part of the magic, the secret sauce is, um, we agree to be, ruthlessly disciplined about hearing from God. So over the year, um, we're very disciplined about our devotional practice for six days a week. And we actually prescribe the devotions and we go through it in unison and such that people are exposed to lots of different ways of communing with God that maybe they haven't been exposed to before, given their denominational backgrounds, et cetera. So perhaps you've never done the prayer of discernment, or perhaps you've never done Lectio Divina. Um, you'll be exposed to some different kinds of hearing from God that might um, allow you to hear from him differently and speak with him differently. The third part of the secret sauce is that we agree as a group to a level of transparency and vulnerability that maybe you haven't had in community before. And so we say rather than earn trust, we're going to assume it. We're going to promise a confidential setting. We're going to assume trust and talk with these people as if you've known them, you know, for 10 years, we do a lot of exercise to, to build this in the opening retreat. And we say, let's see what happens if we are truly our whole selves and we are not posturing and we are not trying to convince everyone that we're doing great and we're killing it all the time. And we're amazing. If we're not posturing. Let's be real. See what happens in community. And then fourth, at the end of the program, everyone does a cultural renewal project so there's a time of prayer about what area of darkness God, God might be asking you to see in your sphere of influence and how he might want you to partner on trying to shine light on it. And each person plans um, and proposes a project in their particular sphere. So that's the, that's the secret mm. sauce and really explains the experience. Yeah. So we're going to put a link on the show notes where you can learn more about that as well and, and the rest of the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. But uh, can you give us some stories around how uh, this has transformed the participants? And and one of the reasons I wanted you to share this was because for a lot of our churches listening, I mean, they're thinking and trying to figure out how do they engage their city uh, mm-hmm. and the marketplace and, you know, talk about faith and work. And, and I just love the example of what y'all are doing. Uh, but inspire us with, you know, what, what the program's done so far. Yeah, sure. So, um, 
the way I think about impact um, is heart change and community impact, um, the meaning to the community of Nashville. And both of those, to be honest, are hard to measure. So I'm constantly looking for proxies to figure out how to measure these things. But I'll give you um, mm-hmm. a couple of data points and anecdotes. So in trying to measure heart change, um, one thing we look at is um, we ask people who to be in Gotham, you you typically are a mature Christian to begin with. So it wouldn't necessarily be a program for non-believers to figure out if they're a believer. And so it's typically pretty mature Christians coming to us to begin with. But I ask at the end, from strongly agree to strongly disagree, do you believe that Jesus Christ is more Lord over your whole life than you did be- than you did at the beginning of this? And we have 98% say agree or strongly agree. And so that's a pretty significant um, statistic. Um, and then I try to look at how are, um, how's the program impacting the community? And so I'm going to share a story um, of a guy named Jay. Jay, before he came to Gotham, he had been working in Haiti in poverty relief. And specifically, he was working with people on entrepreneurship skills. And he got into Stanford Business School and he was about to leave for business school and the earthquake hit and he ended up staying an extra year in relief, um, disaster relief. And then he ended up going to Stanford. He was really just all in with the Haitians and with his experience, both in relief and in um, poverty reduction through entrepreneurship. And he ended up after Stanford coming to Nashville and taking a job in middle management for a um, medium to large publicly traded healthcare firm that delivers a service and almost a retail model. And he was starting to feel by the time he came to Gotham, he was feeling very much on the gerbil treadmill. And he was saying, look, I, I, it's just really hard for me to believe that this job matters to God as much as the poverty relief job mattered to God in Haiti. And so I'm doing this to figure this out as kind of a, Um, fork in the road of should I go back into poverty relief as a full-time vocation, but even though I feel that my skills are called to business. And so when it was time to do the prayer to really look for the area of darkness um, God was, was calling each person to in their sphere, he, he was awakened in the middle of the night and all of a sudden it occurred to him that can't remember the exact number, but he had something like five or 700 people under his um, chain of leadership at the company. And 70% of them were minimum wage workers. And he all of a sudden realized that he had the working poor right before his very eyes, right in his sphere of influence, that he had been dreaming of serving the poor, when in reality, he he had the opportunity right in front of him to serve the poor. So he started doing some research on what was going on with these folks that worked for his organization. And he realized an unusually high absenteeism rate. And so he started pulling back the onion on that. And he realized that most of the folks' absenteeism was due to things that they were having a hard time controlling and that they actually wanted to be at work. They were not playing hooky to go to the movies or something. They would have a car breakdown and then only um, one person in the family could use the other car to get to work and they didn't have enough savings to get the car fixed. So then they had to get on a bus to go two transfers to take three hours to get to a payday loan to then get a loan with an excessively high interest rate to pay to get the car fixed that then took a couple more days and now they've missed a few days of work. 
just because their car broke down and they didn't have the savings to fix it. So he put together an analysis that showed if the company could take care of emergency situations for these employees with cash that the company actually had on hand instead of investing it, that they would actually be more profitable because it would reduce absenteeism. And so he was able to put together this program that showed that he would love the employees more, help them more, and create more profit to the company. It was kind of win, win, win. Um, long story that is probably too long for the podcast, but um, the project didn't end up getting implemented exactly, exactly as it was. But because of his opportunity to present it to the um, head of people management of this particular company, they ended up approving this other very large um, pro-working poor policy around paying for tuition for further advancement for them because this proposal he did had proven to senior management that the working poor really did not have um, much disposable income at all. So it's a neat story because it was very much stirred by God. It very much was within his area of passion, but within a public company. Um, but he didn't have to control the outcome. Um, the outcome, of course, is God's work, and it led to a beautiful outcome that wasn't exactly as planned. That's incredible. I love that. Wow. wow. Okay. <laughs> So we haven't <laughs> asked our first question yet. I mean, we've asked questions, but we haven't asked. It's the five-ish leadership, five-ish so leadership questions. So we may cherry pick questions. There may be three today. I'll answer the leader. I'll answer the leader uh, okay, questions so, really fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So who are you? Uh, who are you currently learning from? Mm. So when I, you send me that question ahead by email and it's very interesting because I can't narrow it down to one because I feel like I'm learning kind of four areas of my life. I feel like I have to have business experience for my job because I'm really ministering to business people. I've got to have nonprofit experience because I'm running a nonprofit. I've got to have theological depth because it's around theology. And then I've got to work on personal habits of holiness and my own discipline. And then I've got a family. I've got a do be a better parent and wife and all those things. And so, you know, for business, I'm constantly reading um, the Harvard Business Journal. Um, for nonprofit management, I sit on the board of Siloam Health and I learn so much from the way that board runs. That's really helping me run my nonprofit. Theologically, definitely Scott Sauls, David Filson and Tim Keller. On the personal habits of holiness, I'm really learning how to separate talking about Jesus as a job and vocation versus a personal relationship with Jesus. And I would say um, Dove House Ministries is helping with that. I'm reading a book called The Common Rule by Justin Early. He's helping a lot with that. And family is just having a lot of really um, amazing peers to learn and support and bounce each other things off of each other. Can you elaborate yeah. a little bit more on the, uh, the yeah, relationship yeah. with Jesus? <laughs> Were you going to ask that too? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I already know. Sure. So um, trans transitioning from, quote, the secular world into the, quote, faith-based vocations, um, I thought, oh, this is going to be amazing. Now I'm just in relationship with Jesus all day, every day, which, of course, I want to be, right? That is That is the ultimate goal to just abide. Um, but sometimes things about Jesus or reading a Bible passage or a theological text 
ends up on a to-do list because I need to do it to prepare for a class or to prepare to teach something or to write an article. And suddenly that um, approaching um, things like that as a task to check off a list at an intellectual level is certainly great knowledge, but does not penetrate the heart at all and is not at all about personal relationship or discerning what God might be saying to me or what I might need to be in prayer about with God. And so for a while, it got murky for me. Like I'm, I'm talking about Jesus all day, but am I having an intimate relationship with Jesus? Am I communing with Jesus? Am I abiding? And one of the most impactful personal practices that has helped me differentiate the two. Um, there's some daily, some small daily things, but I've started committing to a quarterly day of silence, um, and ideally a moderated or facilitated quarterly day of silence. And by day of silence, I don't mean go somewhere and read novels I've been meaning to catch up on with my feet up. I mean um, zero distract- distractions two scriptures given to me and meditating or having silence for eight hours with really nothing but my journal, a pen and a couple of scriptures that were chosen just for me that day. And this practice, um, I actually, I know somebody who's done, who does them for eight days. I, I mean, going to do it for one day, the first time I did it was honestly scarier to me than skydiving because I was really scared that God would not say anything or he would say too much. And I was worried about either end. I was worried about either of those. And I can't even go from the beginning to the end of my driveway in silence. So I'm like, how in the world am I going to do this for a whole day? I now, when it's my day of silence, I am gleeful. I know that I will be met by God. I am so excited when my day of silence comes around now. So that's probably been the most transformative be with Jesus intimate practice that I've put in in the last year or so. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. Now, when you look at the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, your team, what would you say the main point of emphasis is right now? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, for me to get out of the way. <laughs> um, I think as a founder, um, founders often can be very attached and have very strong personalities. And then, um, you know, we've um, ebbed and flow in size and we've been um, team building. And I think um, right now we're still um, working on getting exactly the right team in place. And what we really need to do is not let me be the bottleneck. And we're also really trying to focus on not being all things to everybody, but uh, um, which is tempting to do because when you're a ministry that's about faith and about work, well, guess what? Everyone works. And so what, what kind of work are we about? And so right now we're really focused on figuring out where is our sweet spot and what is our exact focus on that. That's good because you're right. It is kind of everyone, isn't it? <laughs> it is everyone. Yeah. So how have you been everyone. able to narrow that down? You know, um, we're still working on it, but, um, you know, there's a temptation to just be on one end of the spectrum over the other, which might be considered. Um, I don't want to 
broadly make it too simple, but um, those who are oppressed in their work and need some social justice issues around work, or those who have um, a lot of influence and a lot of ripple impact and perhaps a lot of affluence and perhaps could have great impact um, by focusing on their work. And what I don't want to do is be confined to either camp, like we're the oppression assisters or we're the affluence um, mobilizers. Um, but really, I'm trying to help understand that really, um, so that's why I use the word influencer instead of leader. We are focused on influencers, but influencers does not necessarily denote a socioeconomic status or a potential position. And what I'm increasingly understanding more and more and more is that if this work is done well, um, justice issues are part of the work, no matter who you're talking to, no matter what level you're working in. And so someone can be running, um, for instance, I just gave the example of, of this fellow named Jay, who's in middle manager in a white collar, high paying job in corporate America. The area he saw was a justice issue. Um, and so we're still working through how we, how we figure all that out in terms of our mission and focus. So looking at your day-to-day -day habits, what are one or two things other than the spiritual disciplines, of course, what are one or two things that you would say you need to do daily to stay sharp as a leader? Mm, separate from spiritual disciplines? Yes. Um, I need to connect. I need to not let my job be everything. And so I need to connect with my husband. I need to connect with my kids. My kids are grown now. Um, they're aged, well, almost grown. They're aged 17 to 21. So my kids are all at an age that they don't need me for provision. Um, well, they do need me to help pay some bills, but they don't need me. If, if, if I'm not home for a dinner, they can drive to Panera and get Panera or something, right? Um, I, it's really important to me to stay very connected to them and to my husband. So I'd say that's an important part of my daily practice, whether it's FaceTime to the ones in college or phone call or just spending time making sure to be home for breakfast with my one that's still in high school, things like that. Um, I really love to exercise and I would say it's not a daily habit, but it's probably a three to four times a week habit. And the more remote, the better, which is why I'm such a fan of the Warner parks because they're right in the city, but you feel like you're in the middle of a national park three hours away. And so hiking the Warner parks or running in the Warner parks is just one of my sanctuaries. That's good. Yeah. So let's just hear a quick word from our sponsor for today and we'll get right back into the questions. What guides your core beliefs? Are they founded upon solid truth or are they based on others' opinions or your own emotions? What you believe about your purpose and value affects almost every area of your life. And this is the premise of the new film Overcomer in theaters August 23rd. It's the latest from the Kendrick brothers, makers of Courageous, War Room, and others. This movie has inspired the creation of several resources. For small groups, there's the Overcomer Bible Study. For individuals, there's a book called Define. Both are based upon powerful insights from the book of Ephesians. Learn more about all the resources at lifeway.com overcomer. All right, Missy. So, you know, you talked about your family here just right before the, the sponsorship ad. And, and let's return back to that and talk about leadership in your home. What does that look like? 
Um, sure. And before I say that, I, I do feel like I forgot to say one thing about daily habits, which is my mm-hmm. problem with phone. <laughs> Um, we're working on the phone issue in our house. My, um, I'm trying to work towards, and I'm saying trying because if my husband happens to listen to this, he's going to call baloney on me because I'm not successful at it yet. (laughs) But, um, we are working towards, um, at least an hour a day of the phone turned off. I have turned email alerts off on my phone. People, you know, people know if, if it's definitely emergency text me. I don't need to get all those email alerts. I'm trying to not access the phone on um, one day during the weekend. Um, and my husband has instituted a rule of no technology crosses the um, bedroom threshold, which we then get an argument about is reading a novel on an iPad technology, blah, blah, blah. Um, so anyway, that leads into leadership in the home. Um, no, that's helpful. Is, that's helpful. You know, my husband and I met in a bank training program. And so we um, we initially met each other as um, intellectual and professional peers. And we ended up um, going to get our MBAs together. And we married after that. Um, and our marriage has really um, had a lot of um, intellectual camaraderie as well as of course, leisure and amusement camaraderie and family raising camaraderie, et cetera. Um, And I would say we have always just had an incredible respect for each other as um, partners and best friends. And so we see leadership in our family as something we embark on together and I know that some um, conservative Christians may n- not necessarily see that as I, I think that 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 can be complementarian and egalitarian together. Um, I think that it can honor both the way that we do it. Um, but our marriage has been through a lot because all three of our children have had life threatening situations. Um, my Middle child was born with a birth defect and required surgery um, within hours after birth and was in the hospital for almost 80 days his first year. My oldest child was given a terminal diagnosis and was out of school for three years and in battle mode for five and still receives regular infusions. And my youngest child is a type one diabetic. And so um, we've really learned um, about... Um, you take this lane, I'll take that lane. We've got to survive here. Um, and so now we're in a season of starting to see the empty nest. Everyone's health is um, relatively stable. Um, we've also all, um, for most of the years, had two um, significant job responsibilities. And so now we're looking at a, a phase of our family and our leadership and our marriage about what does it look like to not be in crisis all the time around a healthcare issue? And what does it look like to uh, see our marriage flourish separate from the children, especially since the children's healthcare issues have created even more um, I don't know, maybe overparenting in some ways than um, a maybe typical parenting path might. Yeah. So what are ways that you're beginning to to learn how to do that or trying to be intentional around that? Mm-hmm. So I'd say the thing we're doing um, very intentionally right now is um, making sure that we hike the red trail, just the two of us once or twice a week together, just reconnect 
Um, we're trying to, at the end of the workday, I mean, this sounds so obvious, but make sure that we try to connect for 10 minutes or so a day without any kind of distractions around us. And he travels a lot. So that's harder than it sounds. Um, we've actually, um, started, um, we had some marriage counseling when my daughter got so sick with the brain disease. We had some counseling for a few years to help us navigate through all that. And then we hadn't had counseling for a number of years. And we see this as a big transition and we've re-engaged a marriage counselor and we're just really doubling down on what does the next season look like. Let's um, let's really think through what kind of toxic communication loops all of this, um, this healthcare strife might have caused because we really want to embrace um, the, next, the next chapter, even though we're kind of sad about the kid, our last one going to college. And then we're also thinking about new hobbies that we could get excited about together. Um, so I don't know what this will be, but um, we haven't had tons of time for hobbies with two jobs and three kids. And so we're, you know, we both played tennis in high school. Maybe we'll take tennis back up or our kids are getting towards marriage age. I've kind of jokingly said, maybe we're going to take ballroom dancing. And so um, <laughs> if you knew me, you would think that was really funny, but um, yeah. I don't know what, but we're looking for something, some adventure to do together. It'll be just yeah. fun. No, I love, I love all the intentional observations and ways that you're uh, preparing and walking into this new season of life. I know for my wife and I, um, right now we're going through counseling as well. Uh, our marriage is probably the best it's ever been, but we're being counseled by this Enneagram counselor who's simultaneously helping us understand the Enneagram better and also how it works with our marriage. So, I mean, yeah. just even that has just been, I mean, it's not like an every week thing, but but when we've been able to work with our counselor or coach on that, it's just been Christina yeah. and I end up sharing things about each other or our days that it's not that we wouldn't share, but most of the times we don't get to because everything else gets in the way. Yeah. And some you just get into some communication habits, no matter how healthy your marriage is, that you have a couple little toxic eggshell areas that you just don't go to anymore. Yeah. And, um, so he's helping us kind of unbundle what our communication patterns are around those. Oh, that's good. It's actually super helpful to, because it also helps you realize that toxic loop. It's the toxic loops that that's the enemy. It's not your yeah, partner. Yeah. Your partner is your best friend. Mm. Um, so while it isn't always fun, we appreciate and enjoy the overall process. And if my counselor's listening to it, he's probably saying, well, then why have you canceled the last three appointments? But I promise we're coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So uh, I'm going to ask our, our last question, and that is, what would you tell your 20-year-old self about preparing for leadership? I mean, you have um, this age children, but what would you go back and tell yourself? Yeah. It's super interesting. So if you think of a pendulum swinging back and forth, by getting to do this work with people a lot, I've noticed how common this pendulum is. And it's the pendulum that can swing back and forth week to week, day to day, even hour to hour, even over the course of this podcast, my pendulum can swing from I'm not good enough on one end to I'm better than on the other end. And how really abiding in Christ stabilizes you in the middle, which is where you need to be. You're not on either end, the I'm not good enough or the I'm better than. 
which could also be called shame and pride. And I just spent a whole lot of time um, running really hard on a treadmill, being really good at achieving things for um, the affirmation of other people. A whole lot of time, like years and years and years. And I can trace back to how that, you know, part of it's my wiring, part of it's my childhood, et cetera, et cetera. But I wish I could have gotten off the pendulum swinging treadmill uh, or at least moderated it a little bit sooner. I wish I could have seen that um, trying to get another one that was the best score you could get on an annual review at the Boston consulting group was like a shot of cocaine and it wears off by tomorrow. And Mm -hmm. it's not, um, it's not, it's not a sustainable way of creating identity your identity has to be in something else. And, um, I was, I was a little bit slow on the uptake on that. I think that's That's something really good. Yeah. I think that's something, especially for, um, what are you on the Enneagram three or Enneagram? I mean, I'm having a hard time accepting my Enneagram number because I don't like it, but I'm pretty sure I'm a three. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything I know about it would point to that too. Um, but I think especially, what do you want to be? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, the thing about, yeah. A lot of people think I'm a one and I'm positive I'm not a one because ones don't take shortcuts and I take so many shortcuts. Um, So I know I'm not one. And anybody who knows me really well, they start seeing how messy I am and how often I lose my keys. And they're like, oh gosh, you're not a one. You just kind of appear to be a one, which probably means I'm a three. (laughs) You appear to be a one to the people you need to appear to be a one to. Exactly. uh, Is what the threes would do. So I'm a three as well. My wife is too. So I think when it comes to your core motivations, I mean, that's something that, you know, unfortunately, I think we're going to be wrestling with for the rest of our lives. Um, So bad news, but good news that you're aware of it. (laughs) And that gets back to the personal practices. And yes, I like to be in scripture every day. And I'm not at all advocating not being in scripture every day, but being in scripture for eight hours of silence with zero distractions um, in a moderated per, you know, quiet day setting is transformative. I will like be able to journal 25 pages of really feeling like God is speaking directly to me and it buoys me. Um, it mm. buoys me. I, I can feel my pendulum um, stop swinging as far, um, after that time. And the farther away I get from that time, that pendulum, um, arc gets higher and higher. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you, Missy. Man, I have so many other questions about, I mean, I just love to dig down and (laughs) dive into what the boss, everything you've learned and worked, everything that you did through the Boston consulting group, how that works. Um, and what insight you'd have to the local church, but I think we're running out of time. <laughs> but I think that'd be a great topic for another. Well, I love getting, yeah, I've loved getting to talk to you all, and thank you. And um, I'm gonna, if if I talk to you again, I hope you've been on the red trail in the Percy Warner Park. I'm very distressed that you're not aware of them. <laughs> I I will do my best to get out yeah. there. Hey, when it I makes it into your official bio. <laughs> You know, it's, <laughs> it's, that's legit. Yeah. Well, I will say, you know, maybe I should take the selfish stance and say, well, just stay home because you'll make it too crowded. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Missy. We appreciate yeah, your time. You. Nice to meet you all. Take care. 
We hope you enjoyed that episode with Missy Wallace. If you listen to episode 326 with Scott Sauls, that's where we first uh, learned about her and her work with the Nashville uh, Faith and Work Institute. So be sure to check out that episode if you haven't yet listened in. And also check out J.D. Greer's new book, Above All, The Gospel is the Source of the Church's Renewal. This is a great book, a clarion call for the church today. So you can get that wherever books are sold. That's once again, Above All, The Gospel is the Source of the Church's Renewal by J.D. Greer. Thanks again for listening in, and we'll catch you next time.